Welcome to the Taiwanese Diaspora Podcast, where we use personal storytelling to connect people of Taiwanese heritage from all around the world. I am Cynthia, and I'm excited to use this podcast platform as a way to explore what it means to be Taiwanese X. And as we're headed into the end of 2021, I am hoping to get to 50 episodes. I've got a couple more to go, I'm cleaning out a bunch of old episodes that I've recorded. So wish me luck and check back often. This is episode 47. This episode's in English. I'm thrilled that Janelle is able to join us today to talk about disability pedagogy and accessibility advocacy. So because we're talking about accessibility today, I'm going to put this episode on YouTube. It'll be, I think, my first video episode. Um, and that way we can include captions and subtitles. Janelle also talks about what it was like growing up in the San Gabriel Valley as the SGV and um, is exploring unpacking the privilege of choosing when to disclose her Asianness and biracialness. So this is definitely a great conversation if you are working through some of the same identity questions in therapy or on your own. 大家好,欢迎收听台湾人网络广播 Janelle, thanks for reaching out and really excited for you to share your story and be part of your project. To get started, how about we have you introduce yourself? Do English, Chinese, other languages as you wish, um, and then tell us more about this project. Try to start with Mandarin then. 大家好,我是朱志立,我现在是博士学生在Arizona and uh the project so we'll see how it goes so in english hello my name is janelle i am a first year graduate student at the university of arizona in the english uh, rhetoric composition and the teaching of english phd program and my uh, kind of research interests are uh, disability pedagogy um composition studies um, in terms of access. And I'm also kind of dabbling into a writing center hiring practices and how we can look at uh, hiring more students, student workers uh, with disabilities and so on and so forth. Yes, yeah, so my, my project is called the um, Immersive Cultural Project uh, for my PhD program. And uh, the kind of gist of this kind of program is to immerse ourselves in a, a culture we're not as familiar with or that we're desiring to learn about. 
So I chose Taiwanese as a language to kind of immerse myself in because uh, I'm like the only person in my family does that doesn't really know it. So I'd like to feel included. <laughs> Not that I don't feel included. <laughs> okay, so much to, to ask about. So you had mentioned reciprocity of mm -hmm. um, the project. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so um, the point of this project um, and also in like research practice, we try to be reciprocal in the way that we interact with our research, um, people that we research. And so the idea is not just to take from this community or my community, right? The idea is to give back or to meet them halfway or to kind of provide takeaways so that there can be a mutual learning experience. And so the reciprocity aspect of this project has become a little bit more complicated due to the pandemic and having to do a lot of things online. So I asked my supervisor, my program director, can I be on a podcast? <laughs> I was like, there's like quite, I mean, not quite a few, but I know like podcasts are really coming up right now and there's a lot more podcasts. And I was like, I'm sure I can find one. And I had listened to you about six months prior because I was looking up the word diaspora. And so <laughs> I was like, let me look up things associated to the Taiwanese diaspora. The idea of reciprocity, my hope is to kind of allow more transparency in graduate studies um, as a Taiwanese American, in disability, in language learning. So kind of how I see reciprocity, at least for this project, is to, to share my process and to show, okay, th these are my pros, these are my cons, this, these are my challenges, um, and this is authentically what it looks like. So in a kind of a tangible way, the reciprocal facets of this project are gonna be the podcast episodes, and I'm going to host a blog that I made a short while ago. So there's a lot of default pictures. Um, I don't know if you want me to share that now or at the end, um, but I did make a little site. <laughs> so I also made like a Gmail account if, if students, or I always say students, or if anyone else or listeners want to reach out. So that's kind of how I'm approaching reciprocity, transparency, accessibility, and, being approachable or as much as I can be. Where, what's the best place to start? Should we talk about, do you want to talk about the learning piece or the teaching piece or the accessibility piece first? What would make sense? It's up to you either way, uh, whatever you're most curious about maybe. Yeah. So let's talk about accessibility. What can we do to be like more aware? I'll use a personal example through a book club in my neighborhood, probably a, two years ago or so we had read a book about wheelchair accessibility written by somebody who was um, in a wheelchair and doing a lot of activism around that. And I don't think I really thought about a lot of this until I broke my ankle and then was like, I was on crutches. And so for going up and down things like buses or the Metro here, it took a long time. And that's like a physical accessibility thing that I guess was more apparent. Can you talk more about I guess like being hard of hearing or like what that world is like. And um, we're using, um, maybe you can explain the cart system as well. 
Yeah, sure. Um, so I don't know if we mentioned it yet, but I am hard of hearing. Um, I was born premature, so I have a, a few uh, chronic conditions and I'm hard of hearing. So I'm unilaterally deaf. Um, so I don't have any, I have profound to severe hearing loss in my right ear, uh, but I prefer the hard of hearing label. And I think that's more respectful to the community. Um, so um, yeah, I use captions for teaching and learning, um, especially in the virtual spaces, which is really nice. And um, so right now we have a cart captioner. Um, and so the way that works is the cart captioner, um, I assigned her to type captions in the Zoom. And so right now we can see, I don't know if you have it turned on, um, but you can see the subtitles or the captions at the end and then or at the bottom. And then I have a separate link uh, where I change the contrast because I always change the contrast on things and I can see full text in like paragraph form. And you can also um, see the transcript on Zoom if you go to the bottom as well. So more and then view full transcript. And that's how you can also look at the time stamps. Yeah, so cart captioners are trained um, as like kind of stenographers. And so I've used them in virtual and face-to-face contexts in academic spaces. So teaching, learning, also in academic conferences uh, when I'm presenting. So they just provide accessibility for me as someone who might not hear everything. And I, I, always, I always make jokes about how we call it lip reading, but it's really lip guessing because there's only so much of the actual English language that shows up, you know, differently or in a way that is recognizable on the face. And so many folks always say, oh, well, can you just lip read? And it's like, no, <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> so, yeah. And I wear hearing aids occasionally. Um, right now in this kind of digital space, I haven't been, uh, which has been kind of nice because <laughs> your ears get itchy. <laughs> At least mine do. <laughs> um, but yeah, so in terms of accessibility, I just, for this project in particular, I think that's why, um, you know, I wanted to try to provide a transcript for this podcast episode, hopefully the next podcast episode. Um, my website or my little, I think it's Wix, my little Wix site, I'm going to try to uh, embed image descriptions and al alternative text for folks with um, visual disabilities. And, and so just trying to bring awareness. And I think especially as a person who is uh, an educator and, you know, in that kind of position, I try really hard to provide access without, in a way where I hope that my students perceive that I'm not thinking about it, <laughs> but I am. And I think especially with captions or audio associated accessibility, I always have captions, but I think it's interesting because like you kind of mentioned in your anecdote, um, it's all about proximity. Um, so whether that's yourself or someone in your family, um, a lot of folks, don't see disability uh, the same way that they see other oppressive kind of marginalized models, right, or groups, because sometimes it's apparent, sometimes it's not. As someone with a uh, perceivably non-apparent disability, you know, I have the privilege of disclosure in most cases, and, you know, I recognize that, and being able to conduct myself in a way that is 
that is respectful, but you, we also always have to do this kind of disclosure game where we choose, like I just had a job interview that was in the, within the university. And it was the first job interview I've ever had with captioning. Um, another capture um, from the team captioned my little interview. And, you know, it, it just is mind boggling sometimes because I've never felt safe enough. And this job was associated with disability. So I was like, okay, I'm just, I'm just going to do it. And they had asked me in the email too. And that's one thing is starting that dialogue. So one way that we can also practice more accessibility is just blankly stating that we're willing to, to be accessible. Right. And so I think a lot of folks understand that we don't always know what accessibility looks like for the individual. And so just saying like, hey, I'm willing to make things accessible. Let me know what that looks like for you and I'll try my best to do it. So, you know, in terms of emailing or websites or anytime, I'm going to try to put like a little, <laughs> a little note on my website says, this isn't accessible for you. Please let me know and I'll try. <laughs> right. So just just being able to be open to that sort of dialogue. Oh, this is so rich. So let's take podcasting as an example. What are ways that I could make it more accessible to people in the heart of hearing communities? And are there tools that you would recommend using uh, or resources? Yeah, I'd mentioned Otter AI, but other, other things you'd found useful. Right. So um, definitely Otter AI, or if you're using social media, um, Instagram just rolled out a captioning edition. So on your stories, you can now add captions on Instagram. Cliptomatic is also an app where you can embed captions to videos. And so prior to Instagram rolling out the edition, I used to use Clipomatic. Um, so that's a good app. Um, YouTube has like YouTube generated captions, which technically um, generated captions are, are difficult um, because most of the time they're not accurate. And there's also a lot of, um, how do I say? Um, racist algorithm stuff, right? Um, so if you don't enunciate or if you speak too fast or if you have an accent, um, obviously the captions are not going to pick those up. And then the person who's reading the captions will understand. So yeah, so those are some tools. I personally benefit a lot from, from folks who choose to describe their own words. So like uh, if you're on Instagram or whatever, just writing your own words instead of having it auto-generated. Or if you use like a program like Otter AI, Otter AI is really great because you can go back and you can edit. So the auto-generated captions are kind of a starting point. And so I think in terms of like hard of hearing folks and deaf folks, it's just about um, communication and willingness to learn from the actual community. I think, especially with disability, oftentimes non-disabled folks will get intimidated and they'll just be like, oh, that person looks like they're XYZ. I'm not going to ask. I'm going to go to this hearing person and I'm going to ask them how to treat this hard of hearing or deaf person, <laughs> right? So what I always try to do in terms of accessibility is to learn from, from deaf individuals. Um, there's a really rich um, community of 
deaf, I guess, social media influencers, if you will, on, on TikTok or YouTube. And so I myself, as a person who's not necessarily deaf, um, just try to learn from other folks in similar communities and in my own community as well. So just looking at the varying experiences of deafness and hard of hearing as, as well. So, yeah. Thank you. What inspired you to want to learn Taiwanese as part of the project? Um, and what sort of resources are you going to use? What's your process going to look like? Does that also then pair together with any of the classes you're teaching? Or is this part of your thesis? Or is it just like a cool project you're doing? Right. Okay. So in my graduate, in my PhD program, um, we're required to uh, complete an immersive cultural project. Um, so it's not part of our dissertation or anything like that. It's just part of our qualifying portfolio. And so that's kind of the project that my program requires to advance to candidacy. And so then I would be a PhD candidate once I successfully uh, complete this project, amongst other things that are required in the portfolio. There are several reasons. I think, you know, I, I live in Arizona now. And that's a different experience. I'm originally from California and I was raised in, in, in the San Gabriel Valley in California, which is very, very East Asian. Uh, so Chinese Americans, uh, Chinese folks, Taiwanese folks, Taiwanese Americans, Hong Kong, Singapore, you know, you name it. Right. Um, so really rich uh, immigrant community and, you know, Asian community and, I completed my bachelor's and my master's in California and I'm in Arizona and uh, let's just say it, it looks different <laughs> and I don't live in Phoenix so Phoenix is where a lot of the like that's where Nine Ranch is and so <laughs> I'm trying to get my friend to go with me to go to Nine Ranch once the semester ends. <laughs> How far are you from Phoenix? About two hours. Oh wow okay. <laughs> yeah so it's gonna be a whole day but yeah so I think I wanted to feel more connected to my heritage. I think as someone who most of my research is connected to disability and that's kind of the platform and, and the route of advocacy that I've chosen. But I think recently, especially in lieu of the uptick of Asian hate crimes and um, experiences associated to, to that, I realized that I can be both, right? I can be disabled and I can be Taiwanese or, or East Asian, right? And I don't have to choose. And I can kind of see if there's a soft spot that brings the both together, or I can choose different kinds of avenues and lines of inquiry, right? So I decided to go down something Asian associated with this project. So the reason why I wanted to learn Taiwanese is because most of my, so I'm an only child, um, but most of my cousins learn Taiwanese from my ama, you know, as, as things go, right? And so my akong had passed away before I was born. I grew up with my ama speaking primarily Taiwanese to me, um, but since I was so young, I don't think I spoke back in Taiwanese, <laughs> and my mom doesn't speak Taiwanese to me, um, but a lot of Taiwanese is spoken around me right? So not at me, but around me. And my ama passed away when I was eight. So I didn't 
really get to learn Taiwanese to the same extent as my older cousins. I am the youngest. Um, so not that all the cousins are like talking in Taiwanese, but a lot of my, you know, my mom is, my aunts, my eyes and jujus and stuff, right? And so just feeling more connected to that. And I think I associate the sound of, of things frequently because of my disability and I find sound really enriching at times and a complex relationship with sound to say the least. And Taiwanese is one of the few sounds that makes me feel like I'm at home, even though I don't understand it. It's comforting. It reminds me of my childhood, of food, of culture, of my ama, right? And so I wanted to feel connected to that again. And that's kind of the main reason why I wanted to pick Taiwanese for this project. Um, also because why not try to learn another language? <laughs> In terms of how I, I plan to learn, I found the Bite Size Taiwanese podcast. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that seems really cool. I've looked into yeah. their work. I tried doing a couple of lessons last year and then I it fell off my to-do list, but I should spin it back up. Right, exactly. I think that's a really great way to make things more feasible for maybe the younger generation or um, Taiwanese Americans that are maybe, you know, in the Taiwanese diaspora um, so that they can contribute and kind of learn that kind of language. Because I really think that Taiwanese is so culturally rich. And I think the way that Taiwanese sounds like phonetically and the tones are really interesting. It might be a challenge for someone who's, who's hard of hearing, but I really think it's something that I definitely want to pursue. And so I looked into their podcast. I'll probably get a workbook because I'm a wordy person and <laughs> I like the words. So, and I also want to support as much as I can. So trying to maybe get a workbook and going through that. Um, but it's a project that I'm going to start in the summer, so I haven't really put too much time. I'm in finals right now, so it's a little... So, and my students just turned in their finals this morning, so grading. That's so much. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah, I'm taking four classes, and then I'm teaching two. Um, so I have about 50 students and then my own courses. And so it's like I have two seminar projects that I'm working on. And I've turned in a lot of portfolios. So yeah, it's a, it's a lot. So <laughs> Taiwanese for the summer, for sure. Applied you. <laughs> but I'm also teaching during the summer, but it's only one class and I'm teaching technical writing during the summer. So it should be a little bit more manageable to learn um, Taiwanese over the summer. I also want to try to speak to my mom in Taiwanese. <laughs> uh, we'll see how that goes. I mean, I haven't been back home, you know, because of the pandemic in a while. Um, but hopefully the summer I can try to go back or at least call them, right? I don't know how it is in, in your family, but my family's obsessed with line, right? And so everyone's in a line group or a line chat or a line. I had to mute it because there was just too much. It's a lot. <laughs> so there's like multiple line groups that I'm in. And so maybe I'll just hit up one of those groups of my IEs and just say, okay, who wants to speak Taiwanese with me? But I think it's it's connecting to them. I think especially since some of them are getting older. I really want to, I don't know, I just want to be Taiwanese. 
Do you think they're pretty excited that you are showing some interest? And are you planning to document somehow like via video or? Yeah, so the blog is definitely going to be written in English prose. So that way it's, you know, for my English for, yeah, <laughs> right? But I'm going to try to hopefully record a couple of videos, whether that's with my mom or with my eyes or, but I want to make sure that, you know, I get consent and that things are comfortable for everyone. And I don't know if the timeline for the video production will match up with the timeline that I finish the project, right? That might just be a finishing touch that I add on a couple months afterwards, just due to general overwhelming PhD things. But yeah, I, I definitely want to try to get some kind of soundbite or video to see. I just talked to my Aku and I don't think he knows. <laughs> my mom had mentioned, she's like, did you tell him? I was like, no. <laughs> First of all, what's the word for podcast in Mandarin? I've just been saying like radio show. <laughs> was like, uh, it's a conversation that's recorded and shared with strangers. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, but yeah, so I think they'd be excited. My mom was surprised, I think, because like I said, I do have a pretty extensive record of just being disability oriented. And I think she's happy that I'm taking more of an interest. And I think also... Now, being in a PhD program, especially an English PhD program, I'm the only person who looks like me, right? So, especially like being biracial is also like, I understand because I am arguably white passing in certain spaces, that that gives me a lot of privilege of disclosure as well. Same way that I view my hearing disability, almost. Not saying that being Taiwanese is disability oriented, but it, it's the idea that I get to choose when to project my Asian-ness. And I think that's been something that I've been unpacking um, the last year or so, like what that means, what I want to do with that kind of privilege, right? And so as someone who, even though my Mandarin's a little rusty, uh, my mom did teach me Mandarin since I was a child. And so I am, I'm very comfortable speaking Mandarin to her. But I think once you like leave the house, you realize it's like, I don't know if I could really hold a conversation with anyone else, even though I can. I've tutored a little bit in, in Mandarin sometimes when I was in writing centers or like I'll, you know, speak to people generally in Mandarin. But still, I think it's interesting too, because as we get into, you know, higher education spaces, at least in my experience, a lot of folks are from you know, mainland China um, as international students. And, and that's a different kind of Mandarin, right? And it's a different kind of cultural experience. So, yeah. Do you want to mention some about growing up biracial? And what's that like in San Gabriel? All, I've never been there, but I, I've heard a lot about it. My parents have Taiwanese TV at home, and it, I think it comes from the San Gabriel area. And so I imagine it must have just been like, like you probably didn't even need to know English to get around, right? I don't know. Maybe that's an assumption. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think that'd be a good question for my white dad. I think he would say uh, you could definitely get around not knowing English, arguably not knowing Mandarin is harder in certain spaces. I mean, the SGV is, you don't understand it until you're there, right? You think 
now that I've left and, and I live in Arizona or even when I lived in other places in California, you're like, wow, you know, that that's home. You know, all the shops and everything are in Mandarin. Everyone speaks either Mandarin or, or Cantonese usually. I mean, not not to discount a lot of the, you know, Korean and Japanese and other East Asian folks who are there as well, um, but it's really primarily Chinese. And so to kind of preface, my dad is uh, a retired naval officer. And so I moved around a lot as a child, but because he was already officer when I was born, we stayed in California. So I've been in NorCal and Central California, and Southern California. But when he retired, when I was 12, my mom, her kind of gift, if you will, was, okay, we'll move to the SGV. And at that time, my entire family was there. I think after being in NorCal or especially Central California, it was a kind of a culture shock because even though I you know, have been Asian my whole life, being in kind of an ethnoburb, if you will, is a, is a different kind of experience. You see signs in Mandarin, you see a lot of folks who look like you. You know, my high school was predominantly East Asian, which now that I'm not there, I realize <laughs> that that's not common. <laughs> but if you look at pictures of me at high school, like everyone is Asian. And so it's really interesting because like I'll have friends who are not Asian and they'll be like, oh, is this like a club? And I was like, no, nah, this is my whole high school. <laughs> Right. I just went to the optometrist a couple of weeks ago here in Arizona, and I have like my prescription from someplace in the San Gabriel Valley. Right. And the optometrist was like, oh, are you from the 626? <laughs> and so it's just really interesting. Even you just Wait, share. You have to you have to explain what that is. Oh, yeah. Sorry. The area code. Uh, so the San Gabriel Valley, the area code is the 626 or 626 also my area code. <laughs> so, uh, but don't hit me up. Um, but so, yeah, so the 626 is kind of, I guess, the cool colloquial term for the younger generation. But I think generally speaking, people call it San Gabriel Valley, SGV, 626. But yeah, I just thought that was really interesting. That sounds so hip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, from the 626. I always think of Stitch from Lilo and Stitch because he was 626. But that's, that's just showing my age um, <laughs> or maybe not my age. Um, but so, yeah, the 626 and the SGV is just really interesting because everyone understands it. Or, or at least most folks, in, especially in the Taiwanese diaspora and, and Taiwanese adjacent spaces, usually understand some notion that there's this kind of community <laughs> in Southern California, right, associated with San Gabriel. So it's really cool. I think because I was growing up, you know, from 12 plus in the San Gabriel Valley, being biracial wasn't really a big deal because there were a lot of biracial um, people as well. But I think a lot of the biracial people around me weren't Taiwanese. Um, so like I had friends who were half Vietnamese or Singaporean or, um, you know, mainland Chinese, Korean, Japanese. There were kind of a few Taiwanese biracial people that like my mom knew, like from from other, you know, aunties and stuff. I have a couple of cousins who are also biracial. Yeah, generally speaking, I think being biracial, especially in the San Gabriel Valley is not a huge deal. It was interesting when I went to Taiwan, though. 
I think especially as a biracial person, you get to see, even though I get to choose when I want to speak Mandarin, or most of the time, like I said previously, I get to choose when to disclose my Asian-ness. Sometimes you don't, especially in, in Taiwan. I think uh, especially in Taiwan, I learned that that wasn't the case, that maybe only in an American context do I have more uh, ability to choose. Because in Taiwan, everyone off the bat was like, oh, you still want to you know, and and it's so funny, especially in in Northern California and Central California, when I was a kid, a lot of people didn't know that I spoke Mandarin because of the way I look. And so when I responded or when I would help folks by speaking Mandarin or whatever, the kind of sheer disbelief on their their faces is, is interesting, right? I think when I was a kid, I was like, okay. (laughs) So because everyone in my family or most folks in my family look like me, uh, we have a lot of of biracial people in my family and our family friends. And so it's kind of interesting. And most of us speak Mandarin. And so it's kind of interesting to see, you know, this kind of idea of proximity, right? Like I had mentioned earlier, when we see it from our own perspective, it's, it's really different when you realize that that perspective is not everyone else's, right? So that was really interesting experience. I think being biracial in a PhD program that is, you know, predominantly white, especially because it's an English PhD program, I would say is is a total different experience because I do feel more of a weight to represent, right? Because when I was a kid, I never had to represent or feel like I was Taiwanese or kind of scream from the the rooftops or claim representation because everyone in my community looked like me and I was comfortable in that community. Yeah. So say more about like being in Arizona now. I mean, you touched on this a little bit before. You can represent both the Taiwanese community and the hard of hearing community and it doesn't have to be one or the other or et cetera. Like how was it for you growing up like in the school system versus like now with either because of the technologies or because of maybe more awareness at the university level? Like, do you, do you feel that there are accommodations that you have now that you didn't have access to as a child or as a student, as a younger student? Yeah, absolutely. When I was a child, I, I think I took about seven different school districts to earn my high school diploma. And so most of that was like five different elementary schools. I went to a lot of different elementary schools, but after my dad retired when I was 12, I was able to consistently stay at the same middle school and high school. Um, But prior to that, I actually got, got diagnosed through the school system. And so when I was a kid, they'd make you take the little hearing tests and everything. And so I got diagnosed, I think when I was like six or seven, so I don't know, was that first grade, I think. And so it was still fairly young. And initially, you know, we had conversations about hearing aids and such. I think because I was a child and because we we're moving around a lot, it was just something that didn't really happen. I didn't actually get hearing aids until I was in my 20s, early 20s. And so I would say in the school system, I didn't even really pursue accommodations until I was in college. 
and not not saying I didn't do well in high school, but let's just say I did better <laughs> in college once I got the accommodation. I think because I am unilaterally deaf or because I have a predominant hearing loss in one ear, I think I kind of had convinced myself that I wasn't missing much. And so you don't really know how much you can't hear until you can actually see on the screen all the things you can't hear, right? I, I still remember the first time I had captioning in a classroom setting in, in undergrad. And I was like, oh, wow, I, I've missed this whole context. And so you realize how much of that is, is guesswork. Once I got formal accommodations and I, I was able to use that in undergrad and in my master's and now in my PhD program, I just feel more confident. It's a lot easier for me to access conversations and understand. And also, I think as a person who has had an audio disability my whole life, I think I've realized that I am the kind of learner who benefits from reading. And so just generally, I retain much more when I read it. So that's really helpful. I, I've done much better in school and was able to arguably get to the PhD level because of, of accommodations and access. So yeah, I think for sure it has changed. I know some schools, and that was something that I looked at when I was applying for master's programs and PhD programs, is what kind of accommodations they offer for students with audio disabilities. And so some schools will offer kind of an application or amplification system. And so it's kind of like a hearing aid, but not really. Um, but you have to mic up the professor and then you have a receiver. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head what that system is called, but I've never liked that. And that was one of the options that I had in one of my undergraduate colleges and when I was in community college. And I didn't want to deal with that because I didn't like the amplification. You know, sound amplification really wasn't for me. And so once I found out about CART, that was my preferred access choice. And so when I was looking for PhD programs, I would look to see which disability resource centers offered CART because not all universities do. And how do you find that? Like, is it something that is known within the university system or is it like via some special office that you have to dig around for? Or like, how do you, for people who are, who may be in the same boat, like how would they go about doing this if that's not something they already know? Right. Um, so normally what I would do is I would search the institution. So the college or university, and then some sort of like disability resource center or disability student center, something along those lines. And that should take you to the office of disability resources. And usually they'll have a list of accommodations. Um, I know at the University of Arizona, there are links for, for how to access cards or sign language interpretation. And so there's like forms for that. Um, usually get paired with a counselor. So in, in most cases, to access disability resource centers at the college and university level, you do need a formal diagnosis which I, I feel a certain way about, um, but I understand to a certain extent why that's necessary. But so you'll need to submit documentation to that office at that university. And then usually a counselor will reach out to you and start that process. And so I, in my experience, I've been to a couple of schools now. Um, in my experience, it will vary. Some, I think especially for audio disabilities, there are usually counselors who 
are fluent or comfortable in sign language. And so I usually get a counselor who is familiar with the hard of hearing and, and deaf community and are usually somewhat familiar and can usually sign. And so I've heard of different experiences for different disabilities. I think not always is the uh, counselor a stakeholder in that community or in that kind of you know space. But most often counselors, or at least in my experience uh, for me, because I have an audio disability and I'm grouped with deaf students, I've had very little issue with receiving access and talking to counselors about what I need and kind of facilitating that kind of dialogue. Are you doing any policy advocacy? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, I would say policy is one of the areas that I wish to get into, but I'm not quite familiar with. At kind of the institutional level, I think policy might be a strong word, but I have advocated for more tutors with disabilities. I'm also trying to get one of my previous employers to consider hiring uh, a student who is fluent in sign language. So kind of adding language diversity to tutoring spaces as well. I have office hours and a lot of students sometimes don't come to office hours, especially in this kind of Zoom space. Even with CART, I've, and so she and I have been talking about I talk a lot about like image descriptions and audio descriptions and how as card captioners, they can capture more sound or we can work on, you know, kind of building a relationship that is more more transparent with how I want access and how they can provide access for me. I think in most cases, I'm usually, I don't want to say the only, but I know there are very few instructors who use card captioning at least in my experience. So a lot of the cart captioners that I've worked with at individual institutions, we kind of have to see like, what does that experience look like versus being a student, right? And so there's also a lot of extra things as a graduate student, especially as a PhD student, like this project and, and having a captioner here right now. Those are things that aren't requested in undergrad, right? Because they're not going to conferences usually, or they're not having these kinds of projects. And so not necessarily creating policies, but, you know, creating kind of understanding and maybe rules and boundaries, guidelines. So not, not I'm not doing anything like formal in terms of policy or, or citywide. Um, I wish I could. I'm not sure. I just don't think I have the bandwidth right now. Um, <laughs> PhD's a little rough. <laughs> so. Totally, totally. No, but it sounds like you're doing a lot at the institution level where it really matters, right, for both students and instructors. I think I'm lucky in the sense that just my existence is usually, and that's a privilege in itself, but my, my existence in these sort of spaces creates dialogue. And so as long as I try to harness that dialogue and guide it in productive ways, I think folks can usually get some sort of readjustment of how they talk or um, use disability identifying language or how they want to think about. I work with a lot of 
you know, my, my PhD cohort, all of us are instructors, right, as well. And the same thing in my master's. And so just bringing up the existence of students who are going to be like me, students who need access to my peers who oftentimes don't have disabilities or have not disclosed disabilities is really fruitful because they look at me and they go, okay, well, so Janelle has this going on. That could probably exist in my classroom in a student as well. And so just bringing up that proximity and I think sometimes I allow too many questions than I should in terms of like um, prodding questions, right? But I, I always say like, I, I try to facilitate conversation when I get kind of inappropriate questions about disabilities, I will always say, I will answer that, but I, you need to recognize that maybe that question is not inappropriate for other disabled folks, especially disabled students, thinking about the power dynamics of an instructor and a student as well. And so I'll say, okay, I'll satisfy your curiosity because I'm open to that. But just also saying, okay, well, this is where the line is though. Because I think most of the time, these kinds of conversations are out of some sort of positive intent, right? Where they're genuinely curious and they want to know, well, how can I better, right? But they don't know how to ask. And there's kind of a lot of language gymnastics that happen with disability, right? You'll be like, oh, you are a special, differently abled, special hero person, right? There's all these things where it's like, yo, I just have a disability. It's not that big of a deal. And kind of like this fear of using the word disabled is also a big thing. So help educate me, because I, I feel like I definitely did that in the emails and earlier today. Um, so what are <laughs> so what are what are like appropriate ways to right. open the dialogue and what are not appropriate things to say? I, I mean, I'm sure there's a long list, but maybe like right, the right, yeah. most common that you get. So I think generally speaking, uh, disability identity and how we deal with language is a personal choice. And so I can only speak from my experience and how I identify, but I prefer hard of hearing or disabled. I usually like disabled because I do have other chronic conditions. And so I like the term disabled because for me, it feels empowering and kind of makes me feel like I'm part of a community. And so the disability community is really rich. And there are other facets, right? There's neurodivergence, there's madness, there's chronic illness. There's, there's a lot of different facets of the disability community. Um, I think most folks that I've spoken to and interacted with tend to prefer identity first language. So disabled person, disabled student, autistic student, uh, neurodivergent student, wheelchair user. And then, then you have person first language, which is student with disability, person with autism. So kind of having that, that clause in there. And so some, I think there are definitely a lot of disabled people or people with disabilities who prefer the person first, and that's validating for them. And then there are others who don't feel validated by that kind of language. And so it, it really fluctuates for me personally, like I changed, I, I have a paper somewhere where I use the word differently abled, right? Um, it happens and I've learned and I've realized like, why am I fearful of this word? Why do I not want to identify with 
as a disabled person. And then you realize how much as a society we have internalized ableism, whether you're disabled or not. And so just the lack of transparency in these kind of communities, the, the or the non-disabled community is very, I don't want to use the word fearful, but they're uncomfortable, I think. And so they don't want to facilitate those kind of dialogues. And so it's always a deficit mindset. Unfortunately, I have a lot of experiences where people will start conversations with like condolences, right? Oh, I'm sorry you can't hear. Or, I'm sorry you have this XYZ condition or, oh, that's so bad. Or I'll pray for you. Or I, you know, I hope you're, you know, you're so special or you're so inspirational. It's like, nah, I'm, I'm just me and I'm living in this body and in, in this experience. And so it's really infantilizing sometimes to the way that people will talk to me, not necessarily talk down, but it's, it's like, I can't navigate certain spaces because I have this condition or because I have this disability. And I know in most cases, that's a common experience. And so I would just say like, let disabled folks be disabled and let them tell you what that means for them and what that looks like. And oftentimes just saying, you know, oh, that's cool. Or, you know, I think sometimes the questions are really just dehumanizing because we become this kind of weird medical experiment or this weird kind of person that has this experience that people cannot imagine that that's something that happens a lot too, where people are, I can't imagine not being able to hear, or I can't imagine not being able to do this. And just this idea that everything is associated with not, you can't do this You're There's no way you can do that. It's so negative. There are a lot of folks with disabilities who can do everything that non-disabled folks can do, right? There's, there's deaf DJs, there's deaf singers, right? Listen to me. I get that a lot where people are like, do you listen to music? I've had students who ask me if I can drive, right? So it's just, it's really interesting to say the least, but it's also, it's just like, why would you ask me if I can drive? What part of this tells you that I wouldn't be able to drive? And, and not that that matters, right? Whether or not you can drive or not doesn't constitute validation as a human being. <laughs> so it's just really interesting how people perceive disability. And I think as an educator, I'm in a unique space where I can actually educate them, right? Um, and so my existence is the start of that kind of dialogue. Not saying that I preach about disability all the time. I don't want to be that kind of person. But just, you know, having a car capture in my classroom is something that is visible, right? It is a signifier of my experience. And so students will ask questions. And so I welcome questions, but it's always like, okay, never ask anyone else this though, <laughs> right? Or you need to rephrase it this way. And as a instructor of English and language in a broader sense, I think there's a lot of value in talking about language and identity as well. I've been thinking a lot about how to, so this is something I've been thinking about how to do, but I don't know how to do without like spending hours, like pausing, stopping, typing, pausing, stopping, typing. I want to make it more accessible to all sorts of everybody who, for people whose like Chinese isn't first language or English isn't a first language, etc. 
So if you have ideas on how to yeah. do that. Um, so for like an audio platform or audio visual platform? I, I don't know. I, can you do something on the audio platform? Um, well, I think for the audio platform, it would just be a transcript, right? Um, yeah. But if you are thinking about integrating like this kind of recording on YouTube or something, I think if you don't have access to transcripts or, or a transcription or a caption, you can always hire people. They do have programs. I use rev.com. Okay. And I think they're deaf owned. I usually try to go deaf owned. I'm not sure if they are. I think they are though. They, they charge by like the minute. So it's like a couple of cents a minute or something. And I think the usual project is like 10 bucks or something like that. Don't exactly quote me on the price. Yeah, yeah, something yeah. like that. Um, it's usually, I think a lot of folks try to make accommodations, especially with captioning and transcription services, a little bit more price appropriate, but obviously d disability uh, folks and people who are providing access deserve, you know, fair wages. And so I think you can always start with that, or you can, if you want to, for yourself, start with auto-generated captions and then try to go in and edit. In my experience, Otter AI has the best auto-generated captions. They pick up the most accurately. I have the privilege of having a deeper voice. And so I, I pick up pretty well, but there are gonna be some voices that don't pick up as well. Um, usually feminine sounding voices or higher pitched voices are sometimes harder. Also in like an audio standpoint for me as well. But yeah, so I think it just depends on the speed, how you're talking, who you're talking with, it has a lot to do with how transcripts or, or how captions are going to be captured. Okay, cool. So, I will look into that. Yeah, I can try to compile some, some links for you. That would be great. I, I can put those in the list as well. Do you have anything else you want to bring up before you wrap up? I don't know. I think, I think we covered quite a bit, right? I'm excited for this project. I'm really hopeful. I also kind of, in my blog, I do kind of want to, just because I just can't take away from disability, I do kind of want to put a bit of reflection on what that's like learning another language, being in my mid-20s, you know, because it's they always say it's harder to learn a language when you get older, even though, you know, I'm not terribly older <laughs> but you know it's just I'm not at the age I'm not at the prime language learning age and so alongside having an audio disability I just think it's going to be really interesting and I want to document that via the blog and really reflect on what that means and I also want to feel connected you know to my mama I don't think she even knew that I had a you know because I got diagnosed when I was seven and so that's going to be really interesting as well and you think about how many, how many sorts of feelings might come up when you learn another language, especially when it's kind of spliced in your memory. Like I think about how many like memories or associations I have with Taiwanese that I can't even like verbalize. And so I'm really interested in that. I'm hesitant because I feel like this whole project is going to be like a really long therapy session of me just working through my issues with you know, and just, wow, how do I feel connected? You know? I feel so, like that's how my podcast started and how it's working for me. So, Right. I mean, arguably that's all of my degrees too, is just 
how do I feel as a person who is hard of hearing um, and teaching um, and being an educator and trying to advocate and include access is, yeah, for sure. I think, but I think when you have passion and when you feel connected to something, arguably you do, you do it better. Right. right. Exactly. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I so very appreciate this. I'm so excited to follow your your summer. Where can people find you and how can they connect with you? Okay, so uh, I made a Gmail account. It's called This Taiwanese Pokin Project because I'm a wordsmith. Wait, um, can you spell that? This, T-H-I-S, and then Taiwanese, T. A-I-W-A-N-E-S-E, Hoken, H-O-K-K-I-E-N, project, P-R-O-J-E-C-T, at gmail.com. So this time when he's Hoken project, <laughs> at gmail.com. And then the website, because, because I didn't like purchase the domain, is this time when he's Hokey. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so it's called uh, this Taiwanese and then H O K K I dot wixsite.com. But yeah, if you want to reach out or if anyone's interested in access or disability or Taiwanese or anything, you can contact me at that email address. Thank you so much, Janelle. Um, and I also want to extend a thanks to Marissa as well. Um, I don't know if you want to say anything or how how this works or not um but sorry i'm i'm writing so I have oh to... no 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 it's fine <laughs> i want <laughs> wanted to definitely acknowledge you as well so thank you both marissa and janelle today well thank you so much um i think we can end it here unless there's anything else you want to say in closing i think that was it thank you so much i really appreciate this opportunity and your willingness to to learn i think you asked some really great questions so i appreciate that and being able to deal with me for two episodes, I really appreciate that. Too. Oh, I'm super excited for the second one. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll try to do more Mandarin in that one. Um, and also, hopefully I can say, do you speak Taiwanese? I do not speak. I was going to say, I might need to beef up my Taiwanese so I can at least <laughs> pretend to have a conversation. <laughs> you can follow my blog. <laughs> yes. So my dad, my dad actually grew up speaking Taiwanese. Right. And so this is like the language they speak when they don't want me to understand at home kind of thing, you know? So oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I yeah. pretend to try, <laughs> but I will try it more with Ernest. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of my main goals, right? I want to learn what they're saying about me. So, is that a valid reason? I think it's a great reason. <laughs> okay. Good luck with finals and everything, and hope you get to Ranch 99 soon, because oh, I, so. I do miss that about California. <laughs> for sure. All right, thank you, you too. And that's it for today. Please send me a message on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at T-W-D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A or shoot me an email. It's hello at TaiwaneseDiaspora.com. And if you or other people you know have stories that they'd like to share on this podcast, please send them my way as well. Some of you have asked about how to support the show. So if you are inclined, go to Coffee ko-fi.com slash t-w-d-i-a-s-p-o-r-a to donate. All right. See you next time.